Why is the European Union so heavily invested in Israeli-Palestinian relations? Why are the EU's self-proclaimed values habitually the first casualty of its Middle East policies? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moin Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Anders Persson and Diana Butu. Anders Persson is a specialist and scholar of the role of the European Union in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He has written three books on this topic, of which the latest is EU Diplomacy and the Israeli-Arab Conflict, 1967 to 2019. Diana Butu is a Haifa-based lawyer and analyst. She was previously a legal advisor to the PLO's Negotiations Affairs Department and is a frequent media commentator. Anders Persson and Diana Butu, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Anders, if I can start with you, um, why does the EU consider the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to cite one of your chapter titles, more important than other conflicts? Well, uh, thanks, first of all, Moeen, for, for having both of us here, and uh, thanks for uh, inviting us to, to the show. Uh, there are four reasons for that, which I outline in, in my book. And the first is that this conflict was key to foster integration within the European Union itself and to create its foreign policy 50 years ago. In the late 1960s, there was, there was no common European foreign policy, but a lot of people pushed for that and wanted to have that people from the right, from the left and liberals in between. Uh, and then the war in, in EU 1967 happened and, and people uh, saw that as a marvelous opportunity. That was the word uh, or the phrase used in the European parliament. Uh, and a lot of parliamentarians said that this is the time for Europe to use this conflict and the crisis to create a common foreign policy, to unite around this issue. So, <clears throat> the, so the conflict was used to create unity in uh, the Union. And there was also a simultaneous belief that the, the Europeans could help the conflict to reach peace. Uh, so this sort of this role that the Europeans have sort of a special and unique and moral role to play has always been there, sometimes a bit condescending and sometimes a bit naive, but it has always been there. So the first reason was it's key to its internal development. Then it was also based on strategic factors. Uh, after the war in 1967, uh, the European Union, keep in mind it was only Western Europe, East Europe was under communist rule, but West Europe depended for around 80% of its oil consumptions on the OPEC countries. Uh, around 50% of its total supply of power. So this was, of course, a major strategic incentive to get involved. Now, this became an acute matter after the next war in 1973, when the price of oil went up four times. Uh, so what happened then was that massive sort of transferring of wealth from Europe and the US and parts of Asia to the OPEC countries created an increase in trade of 1,000% between uh, Europe and the OPEC countries in the 1970s. So you had oil, energy, trade, later on also security issues. The 1973 war was very, very destabilizing and there were risk of superpower confrontations and all of this. Later on came the issue of terrorism and, and refugees. So these are sort of some of the strategic factors involved. The third reason was that this conflict has always had sort of a 
unique place in the EU's declarations. It often came up first in foreign policy declarations. It came up first when the EU spoke at the UN and in other forums. And 20 years ago, after the, the second Iraq war, uh, the, the EU security strategy outlined Israel-Palestine as the key for dealing with other issues in the Middle East, sort of a key to peace in the whole region. Uh, and the fourth reason is that the EU is part of the conflict through its clo close economic and political uh, relations with Israel and its massive financial backing uh, of the Palestinian Authority. And that is where it's, it's probably more a part of the conflict now than ever before. So these are sort of the four reasons why it sees this conflict as more important than other conflicts. Thank you. And Diana, turning to you, um, why in your view have both um, Israel and the Palestinians viewed the European Union as a more important partner than most other members of the international community? I think there's a few reasons, Ryan. Uh, first, I want to thank you for inviting me. And I really am delighted to be sharing um, this, this platform with Anders. I've really enjoyed reading your book. Thank you. Um, I think Ryan, there's a couple of reasons for this. On the Palestinian side, I think there's been a long thinking that there needs to be Western acceptance, particularly on the project of independent statehood. And we see this because when it comes to other countries around the world, there is a great deal of support, but we haven't seen that wholehearted support coming from Europe. So in a way it was uh, somewhat the last frontier, it's the frontier of legitimacy, it's the frontier of, of getting of the key to the rest of the world, et cetera. I think there's also another reason though, which is, it's rumored, I'm not sure if it was ever said, but this was the rumor that was going around in the early to mid 2000s that Ariel Sharon once turned to the Europeans and said to the Europeans, you are payers, you're not players. Now, I don't know if that sentiment was actually uttered, but, but the feeling has been there, which is for the Israelis, one of the reasons that they look to the European Union is because they have alleviated the burden of the occupation. We've gotten to a point now where we see that the Palestinian Authority flies all, the leaders of the Palestinian Authority fly all around the world and have uh, meetings with various officials around the world, all to collect money for the Palestinian Authority, which is in effect taking away the responsibility that Israel's the occupier has. It's the Palestinian Authority that's collecting money for schools, for hospitals, for roads, schools, hospitals, and roads that Israel should be providing given that it is the occupier. So I think it's the combination of these two things, the, the idea that it's the last frontier as well as the status of the Europeans being the largest uh, or among the largest donors, they're not the largest, but among the largest donors to the Palestinian Authority that has led to such a focus on, on them. 
And of course, this of course comes to the detriment of other countries as well. It's always been perplexing why this has been the focus rather than focusing on some of these emerging uh, markets, emerging countries, et cetera, rather than simply the Europeans. Um, thank you. And, and um, Anders, if I could pick up on something um, in, in your previous answer, because it also comes up prominently in your book, which is that you make the argument that the European Union has, has used um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the question of Palestine, to strengthen the development of a common uh, foreign and security policy. And I guess the, the next question becomes, to what extent has this initiative, in fact, been successful? Well, I think it's fair to say it was successful for, for, for many years, both when it comes to sort of looking at it from the European perspective and also when it comes to sort of from a more regional perspective. The EU was and, and still is uh, uh, very proud for having, in their own words, sort of developed the, the parameters for a two-state solution over the past 50 years. And this begins with legitimizing the Palestinians after... Um, after the 1973 war. First, I mean, in the EU's first declaration here on the conflict, they, they only spoke about the Palestinians as refugees. Uh, then came the term Palestinians, legitimate right of the Palestinians, the Palestinians as a people, the Palestinians as a people with a right to a homeland, with the right to self-determination. This is sort of the 1970s, you know, and both the Israelis and the, the Americans were furious at these declarations. And later on, they adopted many of them themselves. So this is sort of what I mean when I, when I talk about normative power. This continued in the 1980s when the EU legitimized the two key principles uh, of Oslo, uh, which were mutual recognition and land for peace. Uh, so that was in the, in the 80s, and then in the 1990s came the whole issue of a Palestinian state. Uh, and, and, and in the first decade of the 2000s, uh, the Jerusalem as the capital of, of, of the Palestinian state. And then we had the differentiation policy uh, in 2000 uh, in the last decade. It looked quite powerful when, when it came. So if uh, I could just interrupt you, yeah. Andres. So, so yeah. if I understand you correctly, you're also saying that it was... Um, more or less the European Union, which put these issues on the international agenda and and um, pushed for their adoption by the international community. Is, is, yeah. is, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I mean, of course, other actors contributed too, but I think it's fair to say that the, the, the Euro Europeans did this more consistently uh, and more thoroughly than, than others, especially when we sort of look at the Western actors. So the Americans often were, you know, two steps behind and criticized the EU and then adopted many of these ideas themselves. The point is that this has completely stopped. Uh, so, so nowadays, the Europeans are not able, for the past five years, they have not been able to put out a single common statement by their foreign ministers for the past five years. So this whole normative role that the EU has played for decades has completely stopped. And we see that many of these sort of phrases have been replaced now. We see that, say, on the uh, on the right, we see the formula, which is the peace for peace, which is the formula of, of uh, Trump and and, uh, and Netanyahu. 
which of course is very different from the land for peace formula. And among the Palestinians and their allies, we see very powerful terms like apartheid, settler colonialism, and a whole new vocabulary of, of, of concepts uh, becoming more and more mainstream. And, and the point here is that the EU is complete, or more or less, I would say, completely absent from these kind of discussions. Uh, so, so the, the, the normative issue is, is, I think, is a big part of, of uh, all the all the declaration. I mean, fifty years of declarations. Then we have also have, of course, the, the whole institution building project, which also looked in the beginning uh, quite quite good. The EU was, you know, key to setting up the Palestinian Authority uh, after Oslo provided around fifty percent of all the aid coming in, and it was. <clears throat> It was a success story, I mean, more or less, because state building is a very violent, very difficult process. But I mean, when I did my PhD 15 years ago, all the international actors were, uh, the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, were clear that the Palestinian institutions performed above the threshold for what was expected of, of, of a state. So there was a kind of momentum then 10 years ago, which died when, when, when Obama refused to, to, uh, to recognize a Palestinian state. That's exactly 10 years ago uh, this year. So that's also a big thing. And of course, this whole institution building project looks very, very different today with a sort of a, a spectacular decline uh, in democracy and the rise of authoritarian governance in the in the region, not just in, in, in uh, we, we see a spectacular collapse in, in Gaza, most of all, but in, in, in the West Bank too, and also a major, major decline uh, in liberal democracy in Israel. Uh, so, so, and these, of course, are, are global trends. We see the same in, in the EU. Uh, I guess a third sort of thing worth mentioning here is that European officials often say that things could be worse without them. And the argument that they put forward is that they have saved the Palestinian Authority from collapsing after the second Intifada. But I mean, again, looking at the situation today, I mean, I'm not sure how many Palestinians that actually would like to have the PA saved. So uh, things look, of course, very, very, very dark today. Uh, so uh, and that, also, of course, also sort of changes, you know, the whole role of everything that the EU has been doing here for the past five decades. And, and Diana, um, what have been the consequences for the Palestinians of uh, the Europeans seeking consensus on policy um, towards, towards this issue, both in the positive and the negative sense? And maybe to pick up where Anders left off, um, that consensus has, has not been possible within the EU during the past five years. And I, I presume the main reason is that you now have these um, radically pro-Israeli European governments in Hungary and, and, and Poland and elsewhere that have um, that have been blocking um, the continued formulation of a common European position? It's a great question, Ryan. I think in part it's been um, that this has been a race to the bottom, that it is the, it's the lowest common denominator. And so they're willing to agree when it comes to the lowest common denominator. The fact that it took them so long to agree to the lowest common denominator says more about them than it does about Palestinians. 
And I think the reason they haven't been able to progress is, of course, as you mentioned, because of the right wing, but also because they can't surpass that lowest common denominator. Um, they can certainly regress, which we are seeing, but I don't think that the way that it's formulated has allowed them to go beyond the lowest common denominator. And for example, one of the things that we've seen and one of the challenges that Palestinians have faced is that it's statements are not enough. And increasingly, as Palestinians are calling for accountability, for Israel to be held accountable, we aren't even able to get even the basic statements of accountability in place by the Europeans. In fact, it's quite the contrary, where we get some individual states coming forward and, and expressing concern, but not taking it that step forward of pushing for accountability. And similarly, um, when we've seen with when it comes to stopping Israeli action, we've seen that there've been some statements that again, will come out and condemn Israeli action, but again, fall short of pushing it that one step further. So a few of the things that come to mind, for example, are Khan al-Ahmar, uh, the, the, um, the, the attempt by the Israelis to completely ethnically cleanse Khan al-Ahmar, which Sorry, which is in the Jordan Valley, if I'm not. It's in the Jordan Valley, correct. It's a it's a small community. It's a small Bedouin community that's based in, that's located in Area C, and and for that we we have statements by the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court saying that the demolition of this entire um, community, this entire area, would, could potentially be a war crime. And yet we didn't see these equivalent statements coming out from the Europeans because the next step is to therefore hold Israel to account. So while the Europeans have been, in, in terms of policy, have been very good at pushing forward the Palestinian Authority, as Anders has already mentioned, it, th there's then a block when it comes to taking it that step further because the policy is based on lowest common denominator. And another example is you know, back in a few years ago, I don't remember the year now, um, I and others were calling for the dismantling of the Palestinian Authority, the restructuring of the Palestinian Authority, and the response that we received at the time was, um, was very interesting. They said to me that we're either in the process of building a Palestinian state, and therefore we shouldn't be dismantling it or pushing for major reform, or we're financing the occupation. And only time will be able to tell which one we are doing. And at this point, I think it's the latter and definitely not the former. But the fact that this is the, the trajectory, that it's simply the lowest common denominator, has been what has permeated all of these years. So, I mean, to picking up on that point, I now have a question. Um, actually, I'd like to hear what both of you think. And, and Diana, maybe I, I'll start with you which is that there's a general impression um, that in the 70s and 80s, let's say prior to Oslo, European governments, um, and for that matter, the EU, generally had a more developed um, position on, on this issue than European public opinion. But what we've seen since then is the government increasingly lagging behind um, uh, European public opinion, which, which has shifted towards an increasing recognition um, that there is essentially a colonial issue here that needs to be resolved, 
while European governments, you know, as, as both of you have explained, are increasingly out of sync um, with, with the realities in, in the Middle East. Um, does this ring a bell with you, uh, Deanna? Most definitely, yes, especially now when we see that there are protests happening throughout virtually every um, European capital in regard to Israel's latest attack on the Gaza Strip in, in May of 2021 and previous attacks where we see that there is a push by, by grassroots to hold Israel to account, to be pushing for BDS, to be much more vocal and for be, for and to demand uh, better policy. We're actually interestingly seeing that the governments are shifting the other way. And most specifically, as we've been seeing just the, over the course of the past few weeks with the assassination of Palestinian Authority critic Nizar Banat and the protests that have erupted, that um, the only pushback that we've seen from, from European governments is for them to say that they're not actually funding that those armed elements of the Palestinian Authority that, um, that may have been responsible for Nizar Banat's killing, but instead they're simply trying to support uh, the Palestinian police. So again, you see this pushback where, where the publics are, are definitely much more vocal in, in their support for Palestinian freedom, for Palestinian rights, for an end to Israeli apartheid, and governments even hesitating using the A-word. Um, Anders, uh, turning to you, I mean, D Diana's making the point that it's not only a question of European public opinion, becoming much more attuned to the realities in the Middle East, but also of the governments actually regressing relative to where they were um, a decade um, or longer ago. And you mentioned um, how Palestinians are increasingly resorting to terms like um, apartheid and settler colonialism and so on. But we've also seen these increasingly being used um, uh, within Europe um, by, by people who are concerned with this issue. Yes, uh, that's right. And it's also, I mean, I, I can pick up on a few things that that, that uh, Diana Please. spoke about. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, I mean, I first will say, I have. I mean, a lot of my research has been about sort of these normative things around phrases and stuff like that. And it's important to note that sort of opposition to Israel's settlements and to, to the occupation more generally is probably the most consensus-oriented oriented issue of all in international politics. I often challenge my students and anyone else I talk to to come up with an issue that has more support than opposition to Israel's settlement. And nobody has ever succeeded in that. And if, I mean, much, much more support than anything else still, even after, you know, even after Trump and, and Netanyahu. But of course, that hasn't translated to anything on the ground, for, on, the, on the contrary, the, the situation is much, much worse after you know, 40 years of settlements. Uh, so this whole sort of Noam Chomsky argument that sort of you, you, you build, you know, you, you try to, you know, to build consensus and change people's perceptions. I mean, I'm not sure it applies here at all. I mean, the issue here is not sort of to, 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 to inform people, to, to, to sort of to, to reach out. The, 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 the challenge, of course, is how do you confront this? This, and that applies both for the Europeans and for the Palestinians to formulate effective strategies for confronting something we believe that is unjust. Uh, 
so it goes so much beyond sort of the whole, you know, building uh, the, the consensus and public perceptions. Uh, <clears throat> and I also think that we underestimate the fact that the, 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 the US-Israeli alliance is probably the most powerful political, diplomatic, military, and economic alliance that the world has ever seen. It was even more so when Trump and Netanyahu were in power, but still very, very powerful. And that is, of course, sort of the, the issue behind a lot of things here. Just imagine, you know, for the sake of argument that Trump or Biden now would wake up one morning and say, you know, it's enough with those Israeli elements. It's time, you know, for the Israelis to get out of this. Of course, nobody in Europe, no, say, right-wing crackpot would protest against that. Of course, no one in Germany would say, well, you know, it's too sensitive because of, you know, the Holocaust. But, I mean, it, so, so what's standing in the way here is, of course, the political, diplomatic, economic, uh, and all the kind of backing that the, the U.S. gives to Israel. Uh, so th this is, yeah, this is, this is the elephant in the room. Can I just interrupt and say, are, if I understand you correctly, are you saying that um, the issue of, of Israeli settlements and Palestinian rights is not considered sufficiently important for Brussels and in European capitals to pick a fight with Washington about? No. Um, that, 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 that if they're going to have um, uh, issues with Washington, They'll reserve their political capital for trade or whatever, mm. but but not is is that what you're yeah. trying to say? Mm. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And, and there are a couple of examples of this in, in, in history. For example, in the 1970s, when the EU talk about all this kind of when when this progressive diplomacy evolved, Nixon said, you know, to the Europeans, and I have I, I quote him in my in my previous book that you cannot go against the Americans on you know on on issues of, the, of that are fundamental for American diplomacy when we are protecting you, you know, in, in Europe with, with NATO. You can't do that. So, so just drop it. Uh, and I mean, and again, we see the same things come back when it comes to, say, recognition of a Palestinian state. What European, I mean, most or, or every European leader su su support this, you know, uh, but what they are afraid of is, of course, the American reaction and, and that they don't have uh, a green light from uh, from the Americans. Now I know this from, from sort of personal uh, experience that when Sweden did that in 2014, uh, their relation, their, their reactions were very very mild from the Americans, which of course all Swedish officials saw as a sort of informal green light to do. Uh, and this is, of course, also uh, a lesson. Now, of course, it's a different time now uh, with, with Biden, but. I think there is a lesson to to uh, to be made there. Also, I also think it's important that Palestinians sort of recognize the implications of the rise of the far right in Europe, which I think are severe for the Palestinians in a way that you know it might not be that it might be difficult sort of to grasp it when you are not uh, living here uh, as I do. But I mean, to make a long story short. I think the whole sort of politics of intersectionality and identity politics. I've been very favorable for the Palestinians in the US. We see sort of a whole new sort of framework developing, many new allies, a completely new language, uh, very favorable in, in general. And, and that's something you know, which, which will be very interesting to follow in the future. But the weird thing now is that sort of the US is becoming much more pro-Palestinian rapidly 
whereas Europe is going in the other direction, which would have which, which would have seemed crazy just you know a, a decade ago. Uh, and also so. on account of identity politics. Yes, for sure. I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. I mean, the the, the far right is sort of falling around 20, 25 percent in, in, in many West European countries, a little bit depending on, on, on the countries. Now, what's happening here is that when they sort of emerge, and some of them have, a, have an anti-Semitic past, and they need to clean that up. So they become pro-Israeli to reach the highest office because you can't do that if you are, if you are sort of you know openly brown skirts, uh, and then they sort of push their anti-Semitism over to Muslims and the left and say we are not the anti-Semitism you know these are these are, uh, and then they also see Israel as a model, both when it comes to say sort of an ethnic uh, uh, you know uh, an ethnic-based state, and also they they mean when. Some people here see pictures, say, from the West Bank or from East Jerusalem, where, when, when they see uh, the Israeli occupation forces suppress Palestinian demonstrations. Some people here view that favorably and say, this is exactly what we should do in our suburbs. You know, the Israelis are the only ones who are tough enough, you know, to go in with guns and just shoot all the troublemakers. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I say that you know with a full respect for what the Palestinians are are, are are during, but I think it's important that you know that this is the reality that some people that that, that they uh, how how they see it, uh, and also of course uh, being pro-Israeli is is for some of these parties a key also to have good relations with the U.S., especially when Trump was uh, was president. So this is some of of. Uh, so I think this is some of the implications of this new development. Um, and and turning maybe to to another aspect of of, of that, um, as as Diana was saying um, uh, during the previous part of the discussion, you know the, the the EU stands accused of having become the chief financier of the occupation, um, and also of being complicit not only in Israeli crimes against the Palestinian people, but also sharing responsibility for um, the development of the Palestinian Authority into a, into a police state. Um, Diana, um, how do you, uh, I mean, I, I, you spoke about this briefly, but I'd like to hear more about how you view the question of European Union um, complicity in this issue. It's it's been quite complicit, and and it, it this is this isn't just recent in terms of the assassination of Mizar Banat, but has been going on for many 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 years. But Mahmoud Abbas was elected in two thousand and five for what was supposed to be a four year term, ending in two thousand and nine, and then we had our parliamentary elections in two thousand and six. They were supposed to go for, again, four-year term with new elections in 2010. And here we are in the year 2021, and we haven't had new elections, but it's not just a question of new elections, Brian. It's been even beyond that. Our parliament, the, the Palestinian Legislative Council has not met. They haven't even sat in the same room since 2007. So effectively, you're talking about 14 years of the Palestinian Legislative Council not even meeting. Now in December of 2018 was when Mahmoud Abbas finally re repealed parliament and indicated that he was gonna have elections. 
But that was 11 and a half years later after the, the parliament was no longer meeting in March of, of 2007. So all of this time, we've seen that laws have just been passed through presidential decree. They're all considered to be temporary laws. And what's really fascinating is that we've seen that double the number of laws have been passed from the period of 2006 to the period of 2016, then were passed during the period of 1996 to 2006. And yet 1996 to 2006 is when we had a parliament and 2006 to 2016 is when we only had everything by presidential decree. In fact, it's double the number that have been passed. And throughout this entire period, all we've heard is support for elections and wanting to see elections, but they've been very silent when it comes to things like the Palestinian authorities um, increasing control over all of the, the security services, uh, the repressive crackdowns that have been happening for many, many years, the fact that we've seen crackdowns against independent media in the West Bank by Mahmoud Abbas. We've seen that there have been a number of websites that have been blacklisted in the West Bank. We've seen the control that Mahmoud Abbas has taken and exerted over NGOs. And lastly, we've seen the, the effective control that he has over the, legis over, the, over the judiciary. So on all levels, whether it's the judiciary, the security services, the NGOs, or the media, this has not just happened overnight. It's been, it's been a longstanding process. And throughout this, the Europeans have, have it, it, I might be incorrect, but I do recall one day march that they issued against um, Mahmoud Abbas regarding the judiciary, but for the most part have effectively remained silent. And the message that this is sent is that they can do both things at the same time. They can give money to Palestinian NGOs to focus on human rights and rule of law and all of those, all of those wonderful um, code phrases, but at the same time then giving money to the Palestinian Authority to continue its repressive acts against people who are dissenting against its rules. So it's been playing this dual role for quite some time. And you know, on the issue of, uh, of the United States, and I agree with Anders, I think it is the big elephant in the room. I think we also should not discount the role that these countries themselves have and the limiting effect that they themselves have made. For example, even without the United States, I do think that Germany would still take a very strong stance uh, when it comes to certain issues regarding Palestine. Yes, they're opposed to the occupation. Yes, they're opposed to settlements, but they're not willing to translate those yeses into actual action that will lead to liberation. And um, Anders, turning to you, I mean, we've just heard Diana um, explained how, how um, the EU is, in her view, complicit in Palestinian authority repression. Um, but if I were to ask you how you see the EU, or if and how you see the EU complicit in the Israeli occupation um, that it says it opposes and wants to see end. Um, and maybe this brings, into, uh, this brings into the discussion the whole issue of differentiation, settlement products, and so on. Well, first of all, I think that Diana is absolutely correct in her analysis and that, that that's what we are seeing now is that the EU is more, I mean, it's, it's no, nobody can no longer sort of argue that 
CEO is you know not maintaining and upholding uh, the occupation and the whole Oslo structure, which is so powerful and it's so difficult to look beyond it. Uh, so they, I mean, there is no doubt that this is exactly what is going on. And I think it's also, I think it's fair to say that what, what we are seeing now increasingly is that we are not not, not just sort of paying for you know the the PA. And, 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 and enabling them to abuse the Palestinians. But I think this is also sort of seen more and more as sort of paying for European security. I think there's a big fear of what will happen if the PA collapses and if the, the Hamas regime in Gaza collapses, because one of the big lessons for Europe has been that sort of we have underestimated the cost of collapsed governance structures in in Syria, in Iraq, in, in Yemen, in Libya, perhaps now in, in, in Lebanon as well. And, and so in, and in light of all of this and the refugee flows, which has sort of transformed Europe, uh, led to contribute to the rise of the far right. I, I think nobody would like to see the collapse of the PA uh, and the Hamas regime in Gaza. So this, I think, is the background to sort of why this is being uh, maintained. Also, sort of as I, as I alluded to earlier, if we go back 15 years to 2006, when we had the last Palestinian round of, of elections, back then, the Palestinians were considered to be among, and this sounds crazy, but among the, the, the most freest and democratic of all societies in the Middle East. Now, there are tons of methodological issues sort of, of measuring democracy, either in an occupied society as the Palestinians are, or in occupying societies like Israel. But still, that, they, they were ranked very high by, by Freedom House and uh, by others. And I mean, it was very impressive to have a free and fair election in 2006, resulting in the win uh, of an opposition party. Now, the, you know, the, the, the Fatah never accepted that. But still, uh, it was five years before the, the, uh, the Arab Spring. And now we see a, you know, a spectacular decline in democracy. Gaza is sort of one of the most authoritarian societies on the earth. Uh, it's democracy is, is wrong to even use the term, but you know, it's, it's in free fall in, in the West Bank, very rapid autocratization. And also in Israel, a spectacular decline in democracy there as well uh, during the 10 years and even more than 12 years of, of, uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, so this I think is important to, to uh, uh, to mention, and I mean, there are even stories now in the press that the Americans and Europeans are, you know, preparing to run Fayyad again. And and you know, let's not forget that if my memory is correct, he got two percent of the votes in the previous election, two thousand and six. So that I mean, it's also uh, it's also part of this. So it's it's it is a difficult, very very difficult time for for uh, European involvement here, no doubt. Well, we're, we're coming to the conclusion of our discussion. Um, and maybe as a final question, I'd like to ask um, each of you um, uh, what, what you think people who are concerned with the issue of, of European policy um, should be um, focusing on. And what are the one or two issues that you consider kind of litmus tests um, through which we can get a better understanding of the direction in which um, European policy is uh, is heading. And and Anders, maybe I'll uh, I'll, I'll start with uh, you on this one. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of sort of students here in Europe are studying the rise of Asia now. For I mean, for all the given reasons, sort of both sort of theoretically, what does it mean that China and how does it run all of this. 
I think that I, in my next project, will study the decline of you. Go sort of theoretically, what does it mean? You know, a smaller, poorer, less wealthy European Union. And, and what does that mean for when it comes to policy? Or when there isn't any policy anymore. We haven't seen any statement for the past five years on, on, uh, on Israel-Palestine. Uh, and also what it means uh, sort of in the region. Uh, I think that is sort of one of things that is interesting to study. Now that can change. I mean, absolutely. Uh, we have seen sort of ups and downs. Uh, uh, so it's, it's possible that it will change. Uh, sort of, you know, I think a lot of things will be possible after Corona. Uh, so, so, and of course, sort of the, all the bad sort of democratic trends that we see in Europe too, they can be reversed. So that, I mean, we should never give up on hope, but I think sort of the, the whole sort of issue of the decline of Europe, I think important to study. Then of course, sort of, looking more locally uh, at the Palestinians, we uh, here in Europe. Just, um, if yeah. I can interrupt you, because several yeah. times you've you've referred to the EU being unable um, to formulate a statement during the past five years. Could you maybe say a few words about why that is so? Yeah, it's primarily because of, of, of the, the rise of the far right, both sort of among uh, parties and also some governments. I'm thinking in particularly of Hungary and Poland and some, some other countries in Eastern, Central and Southern Europe. Now, some of these countries are very closely allied with Israel, especially under Netanyahu, a little bit unclear how, how they will view uh, uh, Bennett. But Israel's alliance with these countries was considered to be one of the most important strategic alliances uh, that Israel had just because it, because it could so completely kill all, all EU, EU initiatives. Now it remains to be seen if this can be uh, maintained, uh, maybe. Uh, I, I think the Palestinians have sort of better hopes with say Biden and Bennett than with Trump and Netanyahu. So it's absolutely, I think, possible to, to reverse that. Uh, and also sort of the whole, I can sort of, the EU's whole differentiation strategy is, is about sort of focusing on say 1%, say the, the, the uh, economy of the occupation, the settlements. Whereas people like Nathan Thrall, who you have had on your show, is, you know, of course, entirely right when he says, well, the big story is the 99% you know, uh, sort of Israel and all its governments, uh, institutions, and all the companies that are dealing with the occupation directly or indirectly, then just focusing on, 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 on the 1%, which is the settlement. So I think that kind of, of, of uh, discussions are, uh, are important to have. Uh, and I can also add sort of one thing which is very interesting to, to, to study in the Palestinian society is that for, I mean, for decades we hear, or for, for years we here in Europe have said, okay, you need to have you know, a strategy for, 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 for confronting uh, the Israeli occupation. Uh, and uh, maybe they have that now because I mean, for the first time uh, in, in, in many, many, many years, I, I sort of, I have, I feel that the Palestinians have a certain momentum. Uh, they have developed a strategy around Jerusalem, which seems to be very effective, at least in uniting Palestinians, creating new allies. I think the social media campaign around Sheikh Hirah was very successful. And if there are young students sitting here and looking for topics to write about, that is a very good topic sort of to investigate how it came about and why it was successful when previous strategies were not. And so there is, there is a lot of things I think going on uh, in the Palestinian society which can 
potentially be very, very powerful. We, we might be in the beginning of a paradigm shift with, with sort of normatively when it comes to strategies, all kinds of things. But again, the big question is, of course, there, can this be sustained? And can this be translated into sort of effective strategies on the ground for, say, preventing evictions, house demolitions, stopping settlement? That remains to be seen. But, 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 but we may be in such a moment. Thank you. And uh, Diana, the last word uh, goes to you. <laughs> um, in terms of things that I'm going to be looking at, it's for actual actions. Now, I do look forward to reading Andrew's book about the decline of Europe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, but I'm going to be looking for things that show some level of action and not simply stick to the, the statements that have been formulated. For example, we've yet to see any coherent policy when it comes to reconstruction of Gaza after all of these attempts or all these attempts by Israel to flatten Gaza. We have yet to see that there's been any coherent policy when it comes to um, actually taking action against the settlements, uh, actually stopping demolitions. Again, these are all things that we've been wait, we've been hearing statements, but there hasn't really been any anything that's transformed it into concrete action, including when the demolitions affect European taxpayers, such as when when structures, um, when Israel demolishes structures that are funded by, by the Europeans. So it's for me, it's going to be, I'm going to be looking more towards what is the action, the concrete action, if any, that is being taken. Another thing that's of deep concern to me is this attempt to rehabilitate uh, Bennett, Naftali Bennett, Israel's new prime minister. Um, because, because Benjamin Netanyahu was such a person who had been so loathed by so many people and had been so embraced by the Americans, I'm afraid of the knee-jerk reaction to somehow embrace Naftali Bennett, particularly given the fact that he has, he's, he's an open racist, has indicated just how much disdain he has for Palestinians, including saying things like he's killed Arabs in the past and has, sees no problem with it. People in his coalition have also bragged about the number of Palestinians that they've killed. They've bragged about actions that they've taken. They've bragged about their anti-Palestinian racism. And so I'm very deeply concerned with the idea that somehow he's going to be embraced simply because of the fact that he is not Benjamin Netanyahu. So I think our eyes should not just be on what they're doing when it comes to the Palestinian Authority, but how it is that the Europeans continue to embrace Israel and to continue to give Israel a pass. Thank you. And, and on that note, I'd like to conclude um, by thanking both of you, Anders Person and Diana Butu, for sharing your insights with us on connections. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you.